number three, News Talk 1110-993 WBT. Pete Callender here. Thanks a lot for hanging out. I appreciate it. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, a couple different stories now to get to. I got to clear out the stack of stuff. There's a lot of, I got a lot of show prep here, and I did not waste this time of my life doing the show prep to not talk about it. Okay. Uh, but we got this first. Breaking, it was, well, it was breaking news yesterday, which was that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up the case Moore v. Harper. That's Tim Moore, Speaker of the House. Uh, this is over the um, independent state legislature doctrine. <sighs> no, it's actually pretty important. It has to do with redistricting. <sighs> All right, no, it's a, no, it is really important. Um, independent state legislature doctrine basically says that the U.S. Constitution calls for state legislatures to prescribe the manner and time for the federal elections. How does that apply now to redistricting? The question presented, this is according to Ballotpedia.org. The questions presented, whether a state's judicial branch may nullify the regulations governing the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives prescribed by the legislature thereof. That is Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, and can a state court nullify rules that are made by a state legislature about a federal election and replace those rules with the state court's own conjured up rules? Does it sound familiar? It should, because that was our case, right? This was about the redistricting lawsuit where the state court threw out the maps that Republicans had drawn for state legislative races. Uh, well, uh, well, not by the end. The state races they kept, except for a couple, but they, they kept. The, um, the congressional districts is where the state is suing over this, saying you don't have the ability, state court, you can't change the you can't change these rules. This is this is our constitutional prerogative. It's right there in the Constitution. Um, I'm not so sure it's that clean cut, though. I understand their argument, and you know me; I don't make predictions on outcomes of you know court trials or elections. So uh, I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to look at this, but they have agreed to look at it now. If you listen to the folks on the left, simply agreeing to look at it is proof that uh, we're all going to die, which is weird because, like, I thought everybody died from net neutrality already. But uh, and then, like, the Dobbs case and then the gun case. And like at some point, you would think we should all be dead after all of these predictions. The planet should be dead. The economy should be dead. There's just a lot of death. It just hasn't happened. Maybe we stop listening to them. Anyway. Independent state legislature doctrine theorizes that state legislatures alone are empowered by the Constitution to regulate federal elections without oversight from state courts, but from federal courts. So the legislature can draw up the maps, they can write the rules, they can do all of these things, 
as it relates to the federal races, because that's what the Constitution says. But if you want to challenge any of that, you cannot use the state courts to do that. You got to go through the federal courts on the federal elections. Now, you could go after the state rules on state elections in state courts. Does all that make sense? One track for state stuff, one track for federal stuff, okay? The Supreme Court at the time wrote, Today we answer this question. Does our state constitution recognize that the people of this state have the power to choose those who govern us by giving each of us an equally powerful voice through our vote? Or does our constitution give members of the General Assembly, as they argue here, unlimited power to draw electoral maps that keep themselves and our members of Congress in office as long as they want, regardless of the will of the people, by making some votes more powerful than others? We hold that our Constitution's Declaration of Rights, the state constitution, guarantees the equal power of each person's voice in our government through voting in elections that matter. Okay, part of the problem here, and far be it for me to agree with a leftist on much, but there is one who writes over at ballsandstrikes.org, a total lefty, uh, Yvette Borja, Borja, um, she was an immigration attorney with the ACLU of Arizona and the Florence Project. But, see, I've been following the redistricting stuff for a long time, okay? And I remember when the Republicans wanted independent redistricting commissions and the Democrats did not. That's how long I've been following this stuff. So the theory that is being advanced now is actually at odds with the decision that was in the previous case, Rucho versus Common Cause, where the five conservative justices said that partisan gerrymandering cases are beyond the reach of the federal courts, but... They said, wink, wink, state courts, couldn't, uh, they could consider these claims on state constitutional grounds. And that's precisely what the left then did. They immediately sued in state court over the maps. And the state court, run by Democrats, ruled in their favor, overturning all of the maps. So how do you make the argument that if you're the Supreme Court, how do you say that, well, you know, we can't we can't speak to these things. Sorry, but, you know, hey, good luck challenging them in state court. But then turn around and say that the legislature, they have total control. And if anybody challenges it, it it's going to be left to a federal judge. But you just kicked it down to the states. So this could be a pretty tricky thing to navigate. I'm not so sure that. Yeah, I'm I'm going to want to hear what the arguments are. I do. But really the the solution here is to uh is to win the state supreme court. Republicans need to win the state supreme court. That's what has to happen. There are two seats um that are being contested, one's an open seat and uh one as a democrat incumbent and so yeah, you need to win both of those seats. And then maybe all of a sudden the state constitution will mean something else. That's how it works, right? News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The name of the... uh, 
history professor and author that I had on earlier, uh, Dr. William Forstchen, F-O-R-S-T-C-H-E-N, uh, Dr. Bill Forstchen. I actually put all of my show prep up on my uh, Patreon page. It's free. It's open for, for everybody, so you can see it there. Uh, put links up there for all of the stories that I cover. Um, but I'll, I'll reply to that person as well. Um, do, 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 do. Oh, so Joe Biden. President Biden making the comments about the filibuster. If it gets in the way, we should provide an exemption just for this. I want to make all these little carve-outs. David Hersani at The Federalist, senior writer for The Federalist, he says it's become tedious to point out the shameless, unmitigated hypocrisy of the Democrats on the filibuster issue. It really is. And the fact that they get away with this, and by get away with it, I mean they get to stand up there and make these comments, and then they just get regurgitated in the media with zero pushback, none of the qualifications like uh, without any evidence. You know, they would slip those things in on every claim that uh, Donald Trump would make about, well, anything. Right? There's It would always inject these little... You know, responses, these uh, these editorializations in the copy to let you know that this person's saying this, but I really don't think it's true. There's more to this story. Nuance, complexity, right? That, that That's that's how they treat folks on the right generally. And here you got Democrats who once upon a time, Joe Biden, for example, called the filibuster, quote, one of the pillars of American democracy. Democracy, one of the pillars. Tell me what happens when you tear down a pillar of the democracy. Does the democracy wobble? Is this a threat to the democracy? Getting rid of, no, 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 CP, because it's just for this one tiny little issue. That's all, just the one issue. But now he agrees that it's a relic of the Jim Crow era. He had nothing to say on the matter from 2017 through 2020. Well, what's so important about that three-year window? Glad you asked. During that window, Democrats deployed the Jim Crow-era racisty filibuster more than 300 times. 300 times during the Trump administration. That is a record. Anybody care? Does that matter? In 2017, in fact, 30 Democrats signed a letter written by Susan Collins, U.S. Senator from Maine, defending the filibuster as an imperative tool in maintaining the deliberative composure of the legislature. Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois, argued in 2018 that abolishing the filibuster would be the end of the Senate. He was right then, and maybe that's the point. Now that his party is unable to unilaterally dictate policy, he says the filibuster has a death grip on American democracy. You'll notice that Biden's carve-out for abortion and for everything else, it always applies, and only applies, to his party's legislative priorities. Do you, you pick up on that? Isn't that weird? Remember last year, the president advocated for a filibuster carve-out so Congress could do what? Cram through the bill that would overturn thousands of voter integrity laws around America and create a corrupt national election infrastructure. 
that exemption at the time for the filibuster, that carve-out, was justified by the hysterical notion that asking a voter for ID, among other equally rational regulations, that this was somehow an assault on democracy. What else? Um, Oh, when voters learned that the president's preferred policy would legalize abortion with this carve-out, through every period in the pregnancy, through all nine months of pregnancy, on demand, any reason, paid for by taxpayers. Do you think that becomes more or less popular? Because right now, late-term abortion, not popular. Only about, only like 29% of people think so, think it should be legal. A majority say not even legal after the second trimester, right? So, so when this carve-out, if this were to actually happen, and they ram through their codification of Roe, do you think people are going to be happier or angrier? It's going to be even less popular. This is why Democrats have to circumvent legislative norms in the first place. Anyway, there's no such thing as a carve-out either. Harry Reid blew up the 60-vote threshold for short-term political gain back in 2013. Maybe he thought Democrats would rule the roost forever. They would be in charge forever, right? Maybe so. But the next election, his party paid a very heavy price. Right now, one imagines Democrats believe that they'll either be able to demand the parties live by two sets of rules when the time comes, as they do with so many other issues, or maybe their long-term goal is to hollow out the filibuster. David Arsani writes that he thinks that's the case. The progressives' crusade to end the filibuster is a constitution-eroding, radical play to nationalize politics by empowering slim and fleeting majorities to institute wide-ranging generational policies. And what does that mean? Do you think Republicans don't play by those rules? I think that I think the way the Supreme Court looks today should disabuse you Democrats of thinking otherwise. They are totally fine now playing by these rules. You start blowing up the filibuster for, with these different carve-outs, they're going to do it too. And then what, what are we going to have? We're going to have codification and then the undoing of the codification. We're going to have, you know, uh, uh, abortion on demand through all nine months. And then when a, uh, a Congress flips to another party, then we're going to have total bans across all America. And we're going to go back and forth and back and forth. You want to talk about destabilizing a nation? You're upending all of those, all of those courts, all of those Clinics, everything, all, all across America at every state level, local level. This is a recipe for disaster. Just disaster. Right, just for the record, I'm not a billionaire. Figured I'd put that out there. Not a billionaire, so I don't know how these things op- uh, how they work in billionaire atmosphere levels. Is that called? Would that be the billion sphere? I don't know. When you're up in that rarefied air where rules don't apply and that sort of thing, um, I, I I don't know. But for me, just little old me, just regular old you know, common man. I'm a simple man. Seems to me that uh, if you are writing checks, 
from a company to pay another company to do work for another one of your companies. It seems to me that the original company that has that the, the company name on the check, that's who wrote the check. That's where the money came from. What do you think? I'm just going to, all right, so here, I know it's kind of it's kind of difficult to understand. So let me give you like, uh, I'm just going to make up a, an example here. Um, let's just say I own the Carolina Panthers, okay? Let's say I own the Panthers and uh, I want to build, uh, you know, whatever, like a, a new facility or something. So, uh, you know, I go in, do a bunch of ribbon cuttings with the big fat scissors and all that. Yay, me, I'm great, and everybody loves me. And you do the big thing, and then uh, you start uh, writing checks because you're building the, uh, the facility. And so I set up another company, and let's just call that uh, mm, PK Real Estate Holdings. Well, Pete Callender, PK Real Estate Holdings. So I'm going to, that's the company I'm going to use to build the project, okay? And uh, so they got the workers coming in, they're all starting to work and stuff, and they're like, hey, Pete, uh, you got to pay us uh, for the work. And I say, oh, okay. Where do you think that check should come from? Does it come from, right, does it come from my, my football team that I own, Pete's Panthers? Or does it come from PK Real Estate Holdings? the company that I set up to, to build the project. I know, it seems pretty obvious, right? It should come from the, the real estate company. Sure, the one that I set up to build the project. But what happens if I'm sending you checks from the Panthers accounts? Again, I'm just a simple man who believes in paying his bills. That's just me, not a billionaire. I have to wonder, in case people aren't aware... Uh, that is what is occurring. According to a couple stories, one in the Charlotte Observer, one of the Charlotte Ledger. Steel Fab, for example, uh, they were like, hey, man, steel prices gone crazy, up 215%. Thanks a lot, Joe Biden. Uh, this meant the Rock Hill project for the Panthers training facility is already a financial loser for these guys. Glenn Sherrill, chairman and CEO of Steel Fab, gave an exclusive interview to Gordon Rago, 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 at, uh, isn't he the guy that lost to Rocky? Anyway, uh, big story at the Charlotte Observer the other day, that after the project got halted in March, contractors received stop work orders. Steel Fab's cash flow was made worse by the fact that the GT Real Estate Holdings LLC, the company that was set up by the Panthers billionaire owner David Tepper, uh, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Okay, show of hands. How many people think David Tepper is bankrupt? Yeah, exactly. He's not. He's like one of the richest guys on the planet. The filing was done to effect an orderly wind-down of the project, so saith the real estate holdings company. The project came to a halt because of a disagreement be- between the city of Rock Hill and the company, even though construction had already started. Now, as the bankruptcy case proceeds... Steel Fab, one of the many subcontractors on the project, wrote in federal bankruptcy court records that it is owed $4.6 million for work already performed. So they already did the work. Let's see, uh, the holdings company owes nearly $77 million, according to federal bankruptcy court records. Cheryl said it's hard to quantify what this did to our company, but the disruption is significant. 
He said the uh, the loss they're experiencing due to increased steel prices was exacerbated by Tepper's unwillingness to pay his bills. Then there's Blythe Development Company, another sub on the project. They told the Charlotte Observer that it is still owed $2.6 million. The company's vice president of operation, Luke Blythe, called it a huge drain on the company. Uh, the non-payment could affect employee bonuses and raises. I mean, it's not like any of these blue-collar workers are fans of the NFL team locally, right? This is a great move. Really, really great move. Several of the potential creditors have joined in with the general contractor, project construction management company, Mascaro Barton Malo. MBM, I guess, or yeah, MBM, whatever. Um, they want the case moved from the federal bankruptcy court up in Delaware down to South Carolina's federal courts. So, of course, you know, they, they Tepper doesn't want that. The holding company doesn't want that. They're like, you can totally hear this case in Delaware. They don't want it moved. A review of the filing shows Steelfab is among seven contractors and subs who have filed liens against GT Real Estate Holdings. Steelfab's contract for the project totaled $55 million. Uh, he says that the head of the company says that uh, his crew of up to 100 workers worked long hours to ensure meeting deadlines. That included working six and a half days a week. Now, he says they have been able to pay all of its hourly employees, but the money that it is owed has meant the company has not been able to pay suppliers. A trickle-down effect of not having the $4.6 million from GT Real Estate Holdings. And he, he's wondering, like, this is a dispute between you and the city. Why are you involving my construction crews on this? Um, for Blythe, the other sub, he said they were... They really were happy to work on the project. They were excited about it. Uh, he's a Panther fan. He viewed the project as a positive for both South Carolina, Rock Hill, and something his company could be proud of. He called it all disappointing. Forbes magazine pegs David Tepper, owner of the Panthers, total worth at 16, net worth at $16.7 billion. He is the eighth richest sports team owner in America. The Steel Fab guy says, I never dreamed there would be a chance of him shutting down the job and not paying us. Paying his bills is not a problem if he wanted to do the right thing. I don't get this. I really don't. But then again, just a simple guy who believes in paying his bills and pays his bills from the right accounts. That's a kind of I, now. This I do know a little something, something about. See, I have an LLC. I have my own company. I have my own podcast and such. So I had to start my own company. So I understand. You got to keep the funds separated, it's like that song says. Have to. So when I'm looking at a check here from Panthers Football LLC to Mascaro Barton Mallow for fifty. $15,932,568.87. That might be a problem because that's coming from the Panthers account. That's not coming from GT Real Estate Holdings. So who's actually paying for the work? Who's actually liable? Get into that in a minute.
a reminder. The final reminder. This is the last time I'm going to tell you this. WBT Sky Show is on July 4th. You can go to the, go to the website, WBT.com. Get the details. Score some tickets. Make a night of it. It's going to be Uptown Truist Field. Sponsored by Audi Charlotte. And uh, it really is. I mean, we blow up a lot of uh, dynamite. We really do. A lot of money worth of explosives gets uh, lit on fire. So uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a, you get to watch the baseball game. There's a flag ceremony and then there's the fireworks show all on uh, Monday. So go to WBT.com and uh, get all of the details. All right. So I'm looking at this check. Tony Messia over at the Charlotte Ledger. Uh, the general contractor on the Carolina Panthers abandoned Rock Hill headquarters project suggests in new court documents that the Panthers could be liable for tens of millions of dollars of the project's debts. In a filing last week in the bankruptcy case of GT Real Estate Holdings, a real estate company controlled by Panthers owner David Tepper, joint venture contractor Mascaro Barton Mello said that Tepper and the Panthers and affiliated business entities engaged in a series of, quote, intertwined and suspicious dealings that deserve further scrutiny. It says the contractor believes that entities owned or controlled by David Tepper, and in particular the Carolina Panthers, may be liable for the debtor's obligations. Yeah, because it kind of seems like he set up a company and then paid with Panther funds, paid for certain elements of the project, and then when the project went sideways with the city and the county or whatever... Then he's like, oh, well, just fold up shop and close down the GT holdings. And now we're, we'll be immune from any responsibility. We won't have to pay any of that. But if you're paying checks out of the Panther account, who's paying for the work? Messia writes, generally the assets of separate holding companies are distinct from those of their owners, which would mean Tepper and the Panthers would be off the hook for tens of millions in debts racked up on the failed project. But in the court filings, the contractor says Tepper and the Panthers made a series of sloppy missteps and, quote, questionable insider transactions that could open them up to liability. And here's the check. $115 million in payments for work came directly from the Panthers' checking account. The contract with the real estate company was signed by Mark Hart, and it was signed as vice president and CEO. Problem? Hart is the vice president and COO of the Panthers, not GT Real Estate Holdings. It suggests that Tepper's real estate company was not actually being operated as a distinct business. Oh, <gasps> no. Really? That could open Tepper up uh, the larger or his larger enterprise that could open them up to liability. Um, do, 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 do. There's also uh, the real estate company has said that the Panthers contributed $163.5 million in loans, but the contractor alleges there are no loan documents for the payments. This is a commingling of the assets. No bueno. Last week's filing also had uh, some choice words about David Tepper as well who the contractor says deserves extra scrutiny because of his background. It says that Tepper, no, no, he did not live in a house that was once owned by a 
Confederate colonel. No, no, no. It says Tepper is one of the... Uh, sorry, that's a callback to an earlier topic. <laughs> anyway, Tepper is... This is what they said in the filing. Tepper is one of the most seasoned and crafty players in the distressed market space who has made his career in leveraging distressed situations to his benefit. It calls Tepper's football-related business entities, quote, incestuous, if not intentionally fraudulent. Tepper is a hedge fund manager with an estimated net worth of 17 point, or no, yeah, $17.4 billion. Uh, in response... GT Real Estate Holdings, Chief Restructuring Officer, says that its proposed plan is in the best interest of its creditors. And he also said that there has been some interest from developers in acquiring the site. The company has shared non-disclosure agreements with two mixed-use real estate investors that have inquired about the status of the project. However, they have provided no other details. Um. I don't understand, again, not a billionaire. I just, I feel like I need to point that out because people start thinking, you know, Pete, you sound like you know what you're talking about here. Are you a billionaire? And then they start hitting me up for money and it's just, it, I don't do that. So, but I don't have a billion dollars either. I'm not a billionaire, but I don't know what it's like at that level. But I do understand something about loving a football team. And if you want to make your home crowd hate you and hate your team, keep doing what you're doing. Two six packs of shiner. 99 cent butane lighter Lucky strikes and a fifth of Patron Ice down that igloo cooler Take a gas at all to do her I can feel a good one coming on Throw in Ray Wiley Hubbard Sing along to Redneck Mother Any blues I had before are gone the working week is over No chance of staying sober I can feel a good one coming on Yeah, we gonna roll all night We gonna get the feeling right We gonna keep this party rocking Till the break of dawn Yeah, I can feel a good one coming on See, another thing is Aren't they going to be asking us for some money at some point, fixing up their stadium? Does this help? Does this help? No, I, I don't think so. Three blondes in a ragtop Mustang Followed us down to the lake And didn't have to think about that too long Skinny dipping in the bright moonlight Situation couldn't be more right I can feel a good one coming on yeah, we gonna roll all night We gonna get the feeling right We gonna keep this party rocking Till the break of dawn Yeah, I can feel a good one Feel like a good one I can feel a good one coming on So again, not a billionaire, just a radio guy but I kind of think like they're missing a really good opportunity to build goodwill and they're really angering a bunch of people that are their hardcore, probably base fans. But that's just my assessment of it. Hey, I want you to have a fantastic Independence Day holiday. I will not be here on Monday, but I'll be back on Tuesday. Britt Winterbull's up next. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>